bum bum bottom 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 bum
Uh, I have kind of come around on the concept of resolutions or intentions, Lisa. I look forward to planning either activities or setting goals that I would like to accomplish. And, you know, January of the new year gives us an opportunity to put those down on paper. But also, like, if I don't succeed in all of those intentions, uh, I, I give myself permission to either fail or push down the line but or there, evolve them. If there is, uh, if it's just an intention, there is no failure. If you intend to do it, and you start it and you change your mind. That's not failing, that's learning. Yeah, I wanna remove the judgment, especially my own judgment. I think a lot of the narrative around resolutions, especially what you get um, from advertisers, like diet culture or yeah. organization, like they have you trying to think about, oh, well, what would you change about yourself? What's wrong right. with you? And to me, like, that's a horrible way to start a new year, thinking about, like, these are the ways that I suck. You know, I prefer going, like, what did I do in 2020 that I would like to embrace and do more in 2021 and focus more on the positive? Yeah, so, you know, with this podcast, we had a really successful year with Comic Book Couples Counseling in 2020. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to you guys. How can we dig into that a little further? How can we explore this podcast? How can we branch out in new ways? Um, take new opportunities. Yeah, and also we read a ton of comic books this year, right? And we loved it. And we still have comics we would like to explore. Try not to focus so much on the new. Look at the past. What are the comics that we have always meant to read but never have? I like making intentions like a fun challenge. So I've been staring at the shelf of Invincible comics in our apartment for literally over a decade. And I read the first volume as part of our old comic book book club. Rest in peace. And I liked it, but I like then I just got distracted and I didn't read further. So one of my fun intentions for next year is to finally read all of Invincible. And on that line of thought, uh, this year during the pandemic, after I finished Usagi Yojimbo, I started Love and Rockets, but puttered out. And now in 2021, I'm determined to read all of Love and Rockets. See? Intentions are fun. On the podcast side of things, we launched this year our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, but we haven't really like taken full advantage of that yet. We've put out a couple reviews, a couple articles, but I want to like really embrace our website and turn that into something special in 2021. And Lisa and I both really want to launch a newsletter. We've been collecting emails. We've got a lot of emails. You guys want a newsletter from us. We're going to deliver it. And we really want this newsletter to not just be us promoting the right. content that we're already putting out, our episodes and our Patreon episodes. We want it to be another place of unique CBCC content, stuff you can't get anywhere else. I subscribe to a lot of film newsletters, uh, stuff from Drew McWeenie, David Chen, and I'd like to model the CBC newsletter after what those guys are doing, where it's kind of like an editorial, plus some little mini reviews of single issues, maybe even some uh, interview snippets. Like, mm. I, I don't want to talk about it too much right now. but We don't want to make any promises. We don't want to make any promises, but Lisa and I are cooking up some pretty cool things with that. And I am really excited to kick that thing off. Yes, we're super motivated. 
And on like the, you know, the usual more personally, you know, health stuff, Lisa and I started jogging this year. We'd like to get back to that. We really enjoyed it. That's something that we tried, we liked, we want to do more of and get into a better habit with it. But we did fall into a little bit of a funk when we slowly ceased and desist over the course of winter. That's right. But we have invested in plenty of warm weather gear so we can get back out there. Um, another thing is I've put out a couple sketches oh, on my Instagram. Lisa, I love your Usagi Yojimbo at the laundromat so much. Thank you. It's It sounds weird for me to be like, I made something and it's good, but I also like it. I think it's really cute. I definitely want to do more drawing. Yeah. And there, on many occasions, I've tried to start a journal and I think it's such a valuable thing to do, but I always like fall off on that. So I'd like to re-stoke the fires of that intention of creating different modes of journaling. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. And um, I'm not going to join you on any of that because I can't draw and I, I'm, I'm done journaling. I love the way that Brad draws. It's so cute. And I think he should at least put out one sketch just so the people know what you're talking about. Okay, I will tweet out a Brad sketch and we'll see how many likes it gets. <laughs> <laughs> Not many, I don't think. I think if you did a Hellboy, it would be really cute. Uh, I mean, maybe I'll try out a Hellboy. Maybe I'll try out a Hellboy. But as we close out 2020, uh, I am filled with a lot of gratitude. Mm. Uh, I love all of our listeners, every one of you. Yes, you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, for reaching out and talking to us online, for writing a review. We got more reviews this year. I think like four times as many reviews this year than we did last year on Apple Podcasts. And I like... We say it all the time, but we're words of affirmation people, and it's these reviews, it's these comments that we're getting that keep us going, that really have elevated our spirits in a, in a year where they needed some serious elevation. So thank you, all of you, from the bottom of Lisa's heart and my heart, our combined hearts. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. We thank you. Yes, thank you so much. So now on with the rest of the show. Okay, 2020, great year for comic books. We did our episode covering our very favorites a couple weeks back, and we did not talk about sex criminals coming to a conclusion, but it did earlier this year, and that means we can finally conclude our conversation around Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky's kinky comic book. Yay, closure feels so good. It really does. But for some reason, Lisa, I thought we had actually covered sex criminals on the podcast this year, but in preparing for this week's episode, I discovered that actually our last sex criminals episode came out all the way back in October of 2019. If you need a handy dandy link, you can find four of them attached to our previous four Sex Criminals episodes in the show notes. For those that need a quick refresher on what went down between Susie and John in the last volume of Sex Criminals, which was originally collected even further back in August of 2018, here you go. We learned that the big bad of the series, Cooper Badal, has the ability to travel forward in time using a massive, um, suck machine? That's how he's amassed his wealth. Susie amassed evidence against Cooper Badal from her father, but she lost it when the whole house burned down. So it's of no use. After some time apart from each other, in the arms of different romantic partners, John and Susie reunite in the quiet where Susie professes to John, 
I like you a lot. Dewey says to both John and Susie that he thinks they're quantum entangled like two particles of light. He's now in a relationship with Bud S. River, the bus driver. Our heroic group, consisting of Alex, Dewey, Bud, Myrtle, Spurge, Anna, and Susie and John, agree that they have to take down Cooper Badal. When you finish that volume, it feels like, here we go, epic showdown, on our doorstep. The next volume is gonna be crazy. And also, the will they, won't they is resolved. <laughs> Susie yeah. has admitted, admitted she's in love, and now they're gonna be together forever. Yeah, and so you, you, you're in a good headspace. You're feeling warm and fuzzy inside. Foolish, foolish, foolish we Brad. We should have never given our hearts to Chip and Matt. Yeah, we're to blame for our very complicated feelings regarding the final volume of Sex Criminals. But before we can do that, Lisa, we got to talk about our guru. We're going back to Esther Perel. I figured since we're going back to Susie and John, we should probably go back to their love guru. For episodes 29 through 32, we refer to Esther Perel's book, Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, to analyze Susie and John's relationship. Esther Perel is an extraordinarily accomplished person, a world-renowned psychologist and therapist, polyglot of nine languages, New York Times best-selling author, viral TED talker, and as if these accomplishments are not high enough, she is also a podcaster. Stay out of my lane, Perel. Her podcast, Where Do We Begin with Esther Perel, debuted as an Audible exclusive in May 2017 and then came to iTunes in October 2017. Each episode features a one-time, one-on-one therapy session with an anonymous couple in romantic distress. I love this idea. Me too. Her special guest patients feature couples across the sexual preference and gender spectrum. She has a second podcast, How's Work, that premiered in November 2019, which is the same general format, but with work colleagues, so less juicy. Snooze. <laughs> mm-hmm. This time, instead of revisiting the same book, or God forbid reading an entire another book, I decided to turn to her podcasting oeuvre. There are four seasons of Where Do We Begin, which prompted the question, where do I begin with this podcast? For our favorite Sexy Time Bandits, I decided to pick one episode with a couple I felt Susie and John could relate to. I scrolled through the episode descriptions and landed on You Can Be Right or You Can Be Married from April 2018. This couple was stuck in an emotionally harrowing pattern of on again, off again for the past decade before coming to Esther Perel. Hmm. They had a lot in common with John and Susie. They are a heteronormative couple. They both had traumatic childhoods that played out in their romantic lives. He had a hot temper like John. She could be stubborn as hell like Susie. And most importantly, they couldn't stand being together or apart. Mm. There are also some ginormous differences. Um, This couple, both of them have kids apart and together, which makes their finding a more stable situation higher stakes. Episodes of Where Do We Begin consist of actual audio from the couple's first time, only time counseling session with Perel, with interludes from Perel who comments on the events of the session in retrospect. Perel might explain her line of questioning, expound on one of her points further, and sometimes give you insights on revelations she is withholding in hopes that the couple finds it themselves. 
As a self-help junkie and armchair advice giver, <laughs> I found the episode riveting, but also frustrating. Watching this couple fall into cycles of bickering and nitpicking was like mm. watching someone else play a video sure. game and not getting to hold the controller. One of the one or the other of them would say something and I would be like, dude, why did you say that? Now they're going to do this. Rather than summarizing the whole counseling session, I've decided to tease out some of the most pertinent advice Perel gives to the couple so that we can apply those to John and Susie and of cool. course ourselves. Since these are anonymous counseling sessions, we never learn the patients' names. So I'll be referring to them by their pronouns. Okay. Also just to give this a nice sex criminals spin, I think instead of calling them just plain tips, I'll call them just the tip number one. <laughs> just the tip number one. All emotions are valid. Give your partner permission to feel what they feel. Growing up, she was always an attractive person who had a deep well of sadness. When she would express that sadness, she would be told that she had no reason to be feeling that terribly mm. because she was so good looking. She has a long-standing cognitive dissonance between what others think of her and what she thinks about herself. Because of that, she withholds expressing her emotions until she is overwhelmed by them. And when she finally comes to express them, they tend to sound accusatory to him. He grew up in an unstable home and he and his single mother moved around a lot. So he has a hard time establishing deep emotional connections, preferring when challenged to be alone. When he feels accused by her, he acts defensively, blows up at her and ultimately leaves. His leaving makes manifest her greatest fear. Expressing emotions means you'll be alone. And her accusing him justifies his bad behavior. See, if you act like that, I'm going to leave you alone and I'll be fine. Yeah, of course. So Perel, what should a couple do when expressing negative emotions? First, when you feel an emotion, Try to express it plainly and not hide it behind an accusation. If any other part of you besides your feelings is hurt, you say, ouch. Mm. Try to say the emotional equivalent to ouch when the hurt begins instead of building a case for even a greater hurt later. Mm. If you've come from a place of my emotions are valid, you don't have to build a case of stored grievances. You express them and address them in real time. When a partner expresses an emotion to you, such as I feel hurt, avoid asking yourself what your partner having that emotion says about you. You hear I feel hurt and you think, I'm not the type of person who would purposefully hurt you, so you must be wrong. An escalation begins. Perel compares it to cooking. If a customer says to the chef, my soup is too salty, and the chef replies, well, I didn't add that much salt. <laughs> what good does that do the customer? Yeah, 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 that makes sense. If the soup is too salty for them, then it's just too salty. If you act <laughs> offensively, you put the person who has already expressed that they're hurt on the defensive. I've had those chefs though, Lisa. <laughs> I've been that chef, Brad, <laughs> but it promotes a hostile environment. Just the tip number two. You don't like the song, start by changing one note. When you change one habitual action, the outcome is going to be different. 
After 10 years of squabbling, both he and she know how to push each other's buttons, and when threatened, they go for what causes the most massive explosive hurt. He knows that she feels hurt when he tells her she is acting irrationally because she's been taught that her emotions are irrational. He had a daughter with another relationship that ended up estranged, and he carries a lot of guilt for losing touch with that child for so many years. His greatest button is being told that he doesn't care about other people. Every heated argument with these two would go straight for those destructive accusations. When you recognize that you have found yourself in the same old circular argument and you see yourself going for that destruct button, use your freedom to do something differently. When you push your partner's buttons like a jukebox, you know what song you're going to get. Try mixing it up a bit. Perel says, if you don't like the song, start by changing one note. I realize this is mixing metaphors, but this is how the conversation <laughs> went. She suggests taking a pause mid-escalation and take a moment to recognize everything good your partner is doing for the relationship. That simple exercise will change the timbre of the whole conversation. And guess what? Doing something different will feel weird. At one point, Perel tries to guide the couple through an enactment, where they start a conversation that would usually lead to an argument, but instead, Perel prompts them to think more empathetically about each other. Think of it as a therapeutic episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway? <laughs> yes. He giggles in discomfort, and her feelings are hurt, Sure. and Perel addresses him directly. Here's a quote. Yes, it's contrived what we're doing, but everything else that you're doing is so GD absurd. <laughs> I'd rather you be contrived than stuck. Yeah, absolutely. When you are accustomed to doing the same old, same old and being unhappy, doing better will not feel natural. Do better anyway. Just the tip number three. Try solving the problem. I love that you laugh every time. <laughs> I'm a child. Okay, just the tip, number three. I'm going in, but not all the way. <laughs> Try solving the problem rather than identifying the other person as the problem. That's hard. This particular couple has big relationship problems, and I mean big. So imagine my surprise when three quarters of the way into the session, they start arguing about a chore chart. Mm. She is sick of having to constantly ask for help around the house, so Esther suggests mm. offhand that they sit down and make a list of 15 things he can do to help out. He says they've tried that. They had at one point sat down as a family and made a chore chart with everyone's chores, in ch including their children, complete with places for little check marks but he said it fell apart because she wouldn't participate. She said she had to take the chart down because it was, in her words, mocking her. She would look at the chart and see that she was still doing all of the things listed on it, and she didn't want it to be her job to police the chart. They became so caught up in blaming each other for why the chore chart didn't work, they lost the thread of the problem. They both agreed she was doing more than her fair share of the work, and they agreed that the chore chart didn't work. It's time to go back to the drawing board, not the blame game. Just the tip number four, and for me, this is a big one. You don't- <laughs> It's a big one. <laughs> yes. You don't ask a drunk person to drive. You don't ask an upset person to solve their problem for you. Oh, yeah. 
still arguing about housework. Earlier, she accused him of only having friends with women he wanted to sleep with. Mm. But sure, let's argue about laundry or whatever. He claimed that he would constantly ask her for what she wanted him to do around the house, but she would shut down and say nothing. Perel points out that he knows what she's feeling, overwhelmed. When a person is feeling overwhelmed with a problem, it's not fair to ask that person how to solve that problem. Hence, you don't ask a drunk person to drive, you don't ask an upset person to solve their problem for you. When you find your partner emotionally spiraling, don't get caught up in the whirlwind. Stay calm, deliberate, and take charge. Will your partner respond the way you want them to right away? No. Will you be frustrated? Yes. yes. <laughs> you can't tell a drunk person behind the wheel, why don't you just drive straight? This is the hardest part, says Perel. You have to continue to do your bit, even if she doesn't respond accordingly. The bit being the calm, collected partner. Just the tip number five. You can be right, or you can be married, or make room for two stories. Ooh, I like that. When they're done arguing about housework, they go on to that old chestnut, money. He says they are both terrible with money. She says that she has always been good with money. He says that's impossible because she can never tell him the sum total of their assets. But she measures her ability with money by staying on top of bills and debt payments. It's clear that they've had this argument many times and they will never see this the same way. Many of his and her relationship issues come to a head because they feel the only way to win the argument is for the other person to agree with them completely. Each person comes to the argument with a narrative that they feel is the truth. And there can only be one true story, right? That's where the title of this episode comes from. You can be right or you can be married. Perel says, it's easy to be right and be alone. But if they want to be together and they both say that they do, they have to make room for two stories. There is a narrative in our culture that marriage is when two become one, but that doesn't have to be true about everything. One of the many benefits from being in a relationship is having another perspective at the ready. So when you're in an argument, ask, what is the actual end of this argument? Is it that we have the same point of view? Or can we find a solution that works for or despite our different points of view? Even though Brad and I have a very happy ma marriage, I would say famously. Yeah, famously. It's <laughs> celebrated around the world, globe. We still do find ourselves pushing each other's buttons or triggering the same old arguments. Mm. And we often look at each other in astonishment going, how can we possibly be having this conversation again? I like the idea of embracing the freedom of choosing something different, even as transparent that we're doing something self-helpy. Spoiler alert, but hopefully you're all caught up with sex criminals by the end of this book. It is clear that Susie and John are stuck in a cycle that leaves them feeling lonely and unfulfilled. Let's see if we can stop time and, in the quiet, address some of Susie and John's destructive cycles as if we can change the course of their relationship, which is now in the past, so we can't. 
Time travel. Ugh. Don't ugh, time travel. It should be, yeah, time travel. I love time travel. But before we can get to the story, to the main event, it's that part of the show where we highlight the lovely words of affirmation. It's words of affirmation. na 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 Affirmations. One of my intentions is to actually... Do, do a, all of these a theme song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to celebrate some words of affirmation. These were sent to us either via uh, joining our Patreon or leaving us a new five-star review. We always say this, but words of affirmation are our love language, and they legit keep us going week after week. Not only does a new five-star review boost our signal in the world of podcasting, but they also lift our spirits, filling our love tanks. So for this week, we're grateful for Joe Land leasing. Can you... Can you read the review for us? I would love to. This is from JoeLand87. Super podcast concept. Thank you. I thought so too. <laughs> I love the idea of this show. Viewing comic book relationships through the lens of relationship theory. Not only do they examine comics, but they apply the lessons to their own relationship too. This podcast is truly a labor of love and it comes through in spades. Thank you. Give it a listen. And appreciate the work they put into it. Yeah. Joe Lane, thank you so much. Thank you. I love how it underlines like we're working really hard over here. Uh, we are. We're doing some heavy emotional lifting. Yes. We're doing a lot of on-the-fly editing. Yes. Um, we're hurting each other's feelings, having yes. to leave the microphone, come back. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah, Thank you, Joe Land 87. Thank you so much. I hope so all much. 87 of your wishes come true. That's what I'm pretending that the 87 stands for wishes not his kills like he's some con air uh, villain yes okay all right joel 87 <laughs> their wishes not your murders but even if they are murders we still appreciate those five stars hey we gotta appreciate those five stars yes gotta get them where we can get them even from the murderers uh all right the comic book sex criminals the final volume it's also the sixth volume it collects issues 26 through 30 as well as issue 69 because uh, these guys are a couple of chuckleheads. 69 dudes. Up top. The comics were published originally between January and October of this year. They're written by Matt Fraction and illustrated, colored, and lettered by Chip Zdarsky. Here's the basic plot taken right off the Image Comics website. The grand finale, the big finish, the climax. We speak, of course, about this. The end of the award-winning, boundary-pushing, taste-challenging sex criminals. Suze and John have sex, stop time, and rob banks. The bank went after them. Now Suze and John finish off the bank, the sex police, and the bad guys all in one pop, hoping to dodge a huge load of trouble before it explodes in their faces. Robbing Banks, Lisa, the publisher, is still determined to sell the comic off that notion, even though that went out the window pretty early on. Although I guess the finale here in volume six kind of brings that concept back. Kind of. I feel like it's like the elevator pitch that... They got off the elevator floors and floors ago. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Still, I want to read a more uh, basic, crimey, fun comic that's all about boning, stopping time, and robbing banks. Directed by uh, Guy Ritchie, if Ooh, you please. Yes, please. So cracking the spine on issue 26, we get a fourth wall break with this little stand-up routine between Bud and Dewey passing laughs. They're talking to an audience. They're talking to us. 
And they're giving something of a disclaimer having to do with endings and pagination. So um, the conceit is that when this issue was finished by the creators, it was extra long <laughs> and an odd number of pages. Of course it was. And uh, it was overly serious and not very funny in the creator's imagination. So they decided to put Bud and Dewey here to make an even number of pages and provide some comic relief. Um, what they say is heavy feelings can be heavy and not fun, but then that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still feel them. Feelings are good and important. So I think that Chip and Matt are trying to set up for like, this is not going to be the hilarious rollick that sex criminals and usually they're preparing is. the audience for disappointment a bummer of yeah, an ending yeah, which like, they deliver on well, right 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 uh but i think what's also interesting is when they say that bud and dewey are here to deliver the laughs every time they come into the story they don't actually achieve a joke yeah generally they achieve uh, they achieve hurting each other's feelings or failing at a joke, which I guess is a joke in itself. But yeah. like you know, but it, but Dewey, you can, you can, you des you deserve to succeed on a joke every now and again. But we do know that they ultimately have success because they become these like YouTube stars. Spoilers. So weird. Um. But anyway, once we get beyond that, we turn the page and we have this all black page and we get the first lyrics of what is the fourth dimension, which is the song that is playing over the inception of Susie. We see the butt of Susie's father pressed against the backseat window and the mom underneath him. We see his red ball cap on the dashboard. And as the song's reaching its climax, he's reaching his. Susie's mom says, don't forget to pull out. And then boom, we see sperm inseminating and that's how Susie was born, uh, an accident. <laughs> I think so many of us are. I wish that there was the same fascination with people's like last words before they die <laughs> of the parents' last words before they were conceived. Because I don't think any of us would have our like first words. Oh, I sure words don't awesome. want to know either my dad's words or my mom's words. No, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> but what's interesting about this is you jump from the panel of Susie's mom realizing that uh, her dad did not pull out to Susie enjoying a French fry and listening to the same song playing over the speaker in a diner where our gang has gathered to formulate their plan to take down Cooper Badal. And it's the first instance in this comic where time is jumping around, where between panels, uh, either we are going way backwards or we're going way forwards in the story. And on reread, it's kind of a joy to navigate. On that first read, not so much. Like I was getting really like frustrated trying to keep it all together in my head. Especially having so much time since the last time yes. we read these books. I was like, am I missing something because I don't remember something, yeah. which is a terrible feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so like that, that first issue, I was like, oh my gosh, is this whole volume going to be structured in such a fashion? And thankfully, it's not. And, you know, in preparing for the episode, going back to this issue now, knowing the whole plot of the entire volume, it's actually a pretty rad single issue. Yes, absolutely. On second read, it's much easier to understand. Like, I saw more clearly that in this first issue, they do a great job of laying out all of the big, broad topics they're going to be talking about 
for the rest of this comic, starting with this idea of that fourth dimension. Of course, the lyrics of the song kick off this over-intellectualized conversation, at least over-intellectualized for me, conversation between Alex and Anna on what type of fourth dimension is this song actually referring to, which is like, is it like Einstein's fourth dimension, which is like space-time, or is it more Euclidean, as in time is like, a straight shot, yeah, straight yeah. line. Yeah, and like as I'm reading that, I'm going like, okay, you did your homework, uh, Matt and Chip, but uh, I did not, and uh, <laughs> I'm just going to get to the next page. But this, but it, they're telling us this entire rest of the comic is going to focus on that idea of time travel and of time being a concept, and I submit that this song that's being played at Susie's conception and at the diner is an example of these kind of um, subconscious things that connects time to memories. So you think like, I smell a fragrance, I right. have a memory, I hear a song, I have a memory. Yeah, they act as bridges. Exactly, and that those bridges can exist outside of us. So even if we have never smelled that smell before, that smell is still connected to a memory. Right, so when Susie hears the song, she doesn't necessarily remember that's the song that was playing when she was conceived, but there is a connection there. Yeah, like cosmically, it, those two moments are now connected because there is this one song. Song, yeah. When we did leave them off in volume five, the team gathered, they're gonna take down Cooper Badal, they're ready to go. And Alex is like, you know, through that fourth dimension conversation, is like, you know, well, are are we ready to totally destroy a human being? Are we the types of people who can crush and obliterate? Cooper Badal. The question she asked without me triggering that explicit rating is, have you ever effed somebody? Like, as in ruined somebody's life. And while Alex is laying out, like, we do not have the money to destroy all of Bankcorp. We don't have the means. So the only option we have is to destroy a man's life. Are we those kinds of people? And while she's kind of monologuing about that, we get to see everybody kind of in profile um, with what their actual true desires are as the outcome of effing yeah. Cooper. So, like, you look at Suze, and she she is imagining herself holding the head of Cooper Badal. In the background is in a fiery explosion. A Badal Corp is in ruins. Grasped to her leg like some Frank Fazetta lady is John. Then the next panel is Anna. Her kind of like bliss state is hanging back on the couch, reading about a vibrator while her cat farts in her general direction. Myrtle Spurge, she's receiving an award at the Sex Police Awards. Uh, and I love uh, Chip Zdarsky's little uh, like phrase underneath the Sex Police Awards for holding the thin blue ball line. Ooh, very yeah. clever. And then, of course, Dave is you know wearing a sash. He's practically nude. He's uh, the therapist, and he never gets his name mentioned in this entire comic, which is kind of a no, running joke. but he joke. does have, like, several scenes. But he's, like, groveling at her feet as she's getting the award. Uh, Dewey is imagining himself on the box art of a uh, spinoff of Contra, 
called with, with Bud. With Bud called Cumtra. Uh, and then Bud, he's imagining his his ability, the uh, hentai tentacle creature that he's uh, 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 able to spawn, uh, tearing down a city. That's his bliss state. And then John, he just wants to be in bed sharing a moment with Susie. So they have this one act, this major act, and everybody has their ends to that means. So I guess the question becomes, are these ends worth being the kind of person who will F up somebody's life entirely? Well, will even doing this action result in these fantasies? Yeah. You know, not necessarily. Certainly for Susie. Like, if her fantasy is to be holding the severed head of Kuber Badal, like, that's her endgame. But that's not the endgame of the rest of this gang. The question is interrupted, though, because from the outside, it seems that Suze has a spasm Uh where she knocks over somebody else's coffee. But in her mind, she has what I call in my notes a pink flash. So she sees herself and Kuber Badal bathed in this pink light. She seems to have... It's Blood on her hands. Or jam. You never it know could with be sex anything. criminals. <laughs> and Cooper is hooked up to the suck machine and his eyes are glowing. Later, Susie and John are on the phone and she starts to wonder if they've been traumatized by what they've experienced with Cooper Bedal. And maybe that is the answer to why she's having these pink flashes. But John is like, I don't know if we can really say that we're traumatized. Like, and that becomes one of the major themes of this book. Like, what qualifies as trauma? Yeah. Exactly. And Susie has this flashback about working at the library, and she discovers that Lolita has been misshelved in the grief section. Or as uh, Chip Zdarsky labels it. Feels and stuff, but he doesn't say stuff. <laughs> I feel like he is not unlike you, undermining the self-help industry. <laughs> but she she pulls Lolita off the shelf and she goes out to the library and publicly shaves. Like yeah. this is the it's the Dewey Decimal System. People learn it, and one of the librarians catches her later reading Lolita and and going like, uh, if you're going to do that, you might as well lo- work at the library. But she feels a little bit embarrassed that she has been caught reading Lolita um, and discovering, like, I guess, the sexual nature of that book. And I think that this is, you know, putting a big finger on one of Susie's kind of deals is for her grief and sexuality have always been on the same shelf. Like her her self-discovery in the bathtub was an escape from her mother alienating her after the death of her father. And now knowing that like she was born in this moment of accident also, I mean, that just sort of solidifies her relationship with grief, mistakes, that negative energy. And that negative energy seems to be what triggers these pink flashes. And she has another one while John is on the phone and he hears her flinch. That phone call, by the way, is also happening after the events of the diner. And we learn that at the very, very end of this issue that John is in jail calling out 
to Susie. And Fraction and Zadarsky, being the trickster little minxes that they are, don't resolve that for another several issues. Because when we come back in the next issue, yeah, we're not talking about John in jail. And as if things couldn't get more confusing, after that conversation, there is two more flashes, and then we cut to a conversation that sounds like a continuation of the conversation that they were having on the phone. But it's not. It's a totally different scene. And they're lying in bed together, and she, Susie wonders if she's going crazy. And John is like, well, I know crazy because I myself am crazy. And if you wonder if you're crazy, you're probably not crazy. That old, like, logic loop. And she starts to feel embarrassed about talking about her feelings. And he's like, I've literally looked at your butthole. <laughs> there, Like, you have no reason to be embarrassed with me. And Suze goes on to say that these pink flashes feel like traumatic memories that haven't happened yet. And to me, they seem like they're triggered by feelings of grief and sex on the same shelf together. And John goes on to say, like, I, that does sound crazy, actually. But he says, like, only you and I matter. Like, when you think about the bank or the or Badal or Kegel face or whatever, only you and I matter. And, and, we, and we can do, this is important, and we could do anything else. So to me, that ties back to um, our love guru. It ties back to Perel saying, like, if you feel a cycle coming on, a destructive cycle coming on, you can use your freedom to get out of it. Like, if you feel like us going and effing Cooper Badal is going to be destructive for you, we can we can opt out at any time. That's what John believes, but Suze does not believe that. And, and I think that goes back to what were their memories in the diner, right? Suze's memory uh, or, or dream or fantasy or whatever you want to call it is holding Cooper Badal's head while flames erupt behind her and John's grabbing a hold of her leg. And John's fantasy is just sharing a moment in bed together. So while John believes that, and we believe that as the audience, that's why we're buying this comic every month, because we have bought into their relationship. Susie has not bought into this relationship yet. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that more in the final issue. After that conversation, after John says we can literally do anything else, it looks to me like Susie finds that idea soothing. But then he tags on one more idea that is everything's going to be okay in the end. And right. if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's that idea that looks to me like Susie finds that disturbing. Yes. And, and I think when we get to the final page, the very last page of this volume, um, that's how we know it's the end. Like, I think Chip Zdarsky and Matt Fraction certainly believe that as the philosophy of this book. That it's not going to feel okay, like it's, regardless. And if it's is not okay, it's not the end. I think if it does not feel okay, it is not the end. That's the philosophy of Zdarsky and Fraction. I feel like we're putting the cart before the horse by saying that that is the point of the book, because I personally feel like that is not true. I think that they're saying like, in life, you're never really going to feel okay. There are going to be intermittent moments of okayness. So when you find yourself in 
a place where you're feeling happy or joyous or okay, you need to relish and extend that moment as much as you can. I definitely agree that is one of the threads that is being weaved in this comic. But from a storytelling, from a narrative point of view, when John is saying that to Sue's in bed, saying, you know, you, it's not the end until you know it's going to be okay. He's speaking to this story and to the reader. And when we get to the final page of this book, we know it's going to be, it, we know it's the end because they are going to be okay. They might not be okay as a couple. They may never come back and swing together as boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever. But I feel confident that their story will continue and they will find some form of happiness. I think that there are two distinct points of view. And one is John's, which is everything is going to be okay in the end. And there is Susie's in which there are going to be islands of okay amidst just the turmoil and ups and downs of life. And I think maybe it's just a perspective thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, all right. And, and we can conclude that conversation in a second when we actually get to the end of the book. Um, but do you feel yourself then gravitating to one philosophy more than the other? Um, personally, I do think that generally we turn out okay. Um, I don't think that that's... I think it's just not true for a lot of people. I think sure. a lot of lives end in tragedy and it is unfair. But I do believe that you just have to hold on to your next moment of okay. And well, if you look at the species of humanity as a whole, you know, we keep chugging along. We keep adapting. Uh, Doomsday always seems to be on the precipice, but it hasn't arrived yet. And going into 2021, I'm hopeful that... We'll figure things out. Uh, like to me, it's the difference of how would I like to think? I would love to think that in the end, everything is going to be okay. What's the reality? The reality is we don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> well, I'm a John. I guess I'm a Susie today. There are two more little beats that reiterate one of the thematic elements, this idea of what qualifies as trauma that I feel like we should touch on before we go on to the next issue. Okay. So one of them, we get a flashback of Suzanne. She's now at home and she has the book on loss. And her mother is yelling at her going like, why are you reading this book about grief? What could you possibly be sad about? We're doing great. And Suzanne is like, well, I mean, the thing with dad, I feel like it gives me grief. And the mom is exasperated. And she's like, I'm just going to, you know, and her mom has been, we know we've seen her. She started binge drinking and things like that. And But her mom does refuses to acknowledge that Suzanne has this feeling of, of trauma. Yeah. Of trauma. So Suzanne broaches the idea of, could I maybe talk to a professional? Can I go to see a doctor? And her mother's response is, oh, Suzanne, you are so hilarious. What a funny thing to say. I'm running to the liquor store. Can I get you anything? Ha ha. See, I, you're not the only funny one. Then we cut to Susie talking to Dave, who is a therapist who they met many moons ago in the mall food court. But they're friends now at this point, and they've been through a lot together. But Suze asks, like, can I ask you some, like, a doctory thing? And he's like, sure. And she goes, like, can people be traumatized by little things? Or is the only thing that 
qualify as trauma, these big life things. And I think she's talking about specifically that conversation with her mom caused a small trauma about expressing her emotions or expressing a need to talk to a therapist or a doctor. I do relate to that idea of, have I earned the amount of pain that I'm in? Like, am I acting in an overdramatic fashion? Because I remember when I was going through my depression, like I felt like this sadness. But when I was pushed by medical professionals to say like, well, is there anything in your mind that that causes this, that is worth all of the sadness that you're feeling, I couldn't think of anything. Or the same thing with my eating disorder. Like, I, I never had anything in my past that traumatized me to the point where, like, I don't know, people would think like, well, that girl should have an eating disorder. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I think we are always asked or expected to explain our feelings. And sometimes there's no explanation and I think that can cause guilt. We can feel guilty for mm. feeling a certain way. And the trick is to acknowledge your feeling and accepting it and not further punishing yourself for the way you feel. Yes, all emotions are valid. And if we treat having an emotion as the problem, all you're going to do is exacerbate that um, mental emotional state. I mean, that's what Esther Perel was saying in her podcast, right? right. You know, the unnamed she being told because she is beautiful, she has no reason to worry. So buck up. Like that's just such a gross misunderstanding of the human psyche. Dave, of course, hears what she's saying about all of this trauma. And he goes like, are you okay? Like, do you need to talk to a doctor like in a doctory setting? And then we cut to the final pages of this issue. Suze is on the phone with John in prison, and she assures him that she's tired and she's missing him. But you can see in the background that she's in a hotel with wigs, gasoline, and schematics. Yeah. And John is like, miss you too. Be home in weeks. <laughs> Stuff's about to go down. I don't know about you, Lisa, but I don't have a lot to say about the next issue. It's mostly about getting the right chess pieces in the right positions on the board before the big finale. Yeah, I agree. The first thing is that Susie and John put together that Cooper Badal keeps everything that's actually important to him on paper, like the papers that Susie had of her dad's before the house fire or like the files that John found in Myrtle Spurge's basement with all of the information on all of the sexually powered yeah. people. I do like how they arrived to that idea where they where John tells this story about the first time he got shot uh -huh. uh, while he was doing like a, a training seminar with his bank, uh, which, you know, involved live ammunition for some horrible reason. And of course the gun goes off. And then the ultimate, you know, resolution of that was like, well, you know, what we're just trying to tell you is that even though we just shot you, John, but like when the bank robbers come, just give them the money because the money's not really important. What's really important is the data that we have in this building, in our computers. 
I th- and to me that feels very pertinent yeah. to our Everything. current um, yeah, yeah. economic slash political world. And so world. they know that Cooper Badal's like most important information is going to be on paper. Let's go get that paper. Meanwhile, we have Anna and Myrtle Spurge, and they have discovered that Cooper Badal has been not only tracking them, but has been using devices in things like the toaster and their phones to collect their sex power energy and use it for his own nefarious purposes. Apparently he has some kind of big battery hidden behind a door in his office. So Myrtle Spurge goes to his home, says, look, if you don't back off, if you just don't leave us alone, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. Also, Susie has decided, I'm finally going to the doctor. I want to see what's going on. She goes, she gets a CAT scan and the CAT scan comes back clear. And John finds that initially very comforting. Yeah, she does not. But she does not. She's like, there's something seriously wrong with me. We find out on the last panel of this book or the last page that she is at Cooper Vidal's home. While Myrtle Spurge has come to confront him. But Myrtle doesn't see her. Myrtle doesn't see it. Cooper Vidal shuts the door and Susie's like, I want to talk about the future. He's like, perfect. I've been waiting to talk to you my whole life. The next issue is the big Cooper Vidal origin story. The title of the issue is As Bad All As I Want to Be Doll, <laughs> which is fun. But this issue starts with the second installment of Pass and Laughs with Bud and Dewey. And Dewey begins to tell a joke about Pagliacci and spoils the ending. And he leaves dejected with uh, Bud going like, no, tell me the joke. How does it go? And so I f- I heard about Pagliacci in music school, and I understand I it as- I think Batman a- told me the story of Pagliacci. I think it was the Joker in like <laughs> either the Bruce Timm animated series or maybe even Batman 66 is where I first heard the tale of Pagliacci. There is a reason why movies and media like to tell the story of Pagliacci because it is a um, it is an opera where the moral of the story is art imitates life in kind of a messed up way. So in the opera of Pagliacci, there is this actor... And he has this girlfriend who uh, he doesn't really trust. And she goes like, I'm always going to be true to you. And he's like, well, you know, that's good because if you are not true to me, I'm going to fly into a rage. In the play that they're doing, it's a comedy. So they're both dressed as clowns. He is playing Pagliacci. She is playing Columbina. And in the play, she is cheating on him. And actually in real life, she is also Got cheating it. on him, but she's trying to hide it because he has this uh, rage, rage issue. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, kind of actually a short story. Uh, opera wise is pretty short, um, but he is really suspecting of her, her of cheating. And he gets lost in his rage of her cheating. And so he starts going after her. And she's trying to stay in character like, ha ha ha, Pagliacci, what are you doing? Um, But he's saying like, your lover is going to come rescue you. So he then um, starts murdering her. And then I think he might also murder the person that he suspects 
of cheating with, I'm forgetting the details. And then she might also, he might also actually murder the guy who is cheating okay. on, no, is is screwing his girlfriend. So it's like one of those things where he was paranoid about his girlfriend cheating on him. And he was in a play where his girlfriend is cheating on him. And then in real life and in the play, he ends up murdering his girlfriend and one or two other people I can't can't remember. Oh, and I guess the big punchline is that the audience doesn't know that he is actually angry while he's going to kill his girlfriend. So they are like completely riveted and standing and applauding. And I'm just wondering if in this moment, Zdarsky and Fraction are making a comment about themselves. Like- How so? Like they're saying, well, you reference Pagliacci in this um, comic book that has hilarious elements but in actuality, are they saying that they are also traumatized and messed up sexually, just like John and Susie in the book? But aren't all creators Pagliacci? Aren't all creators putting their own demented psycho- you know, psychology into their work? I don't think all of the time they are. I, like To me, I don't think that every piece of art that's being made is being made with the spirit of I'm... Uh, like Steven Seagal's Hard to Kill? You don't think it's in there? Yeah. We, well, because Pagliacci loses the uh, perspective. And so, like, and that doesn't happen all of the time in art. Not every uh, murder mystery ends with an actual murder. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe it doesn't end with the actual murder. But Literally, don't you think, yeah. like, every piece of art, even a silly Hard to Kill Steven Seagal, has some piece of the creator in it? I think yes. And that's certainly I, the fantasy that writers perpetuate. That's true. And I think that in this book, excessively, Fraction and Zadarsky love turning the camera on themselves. Yeah. I mean, th- this comic begins with a dedication page, which we didn't even talk about, where Matt Fraction has taken a dump on Chip Zdarsky and then Chip Zdarsky's dedication page is this really loving, like overly sweet uh, love letter to Matt Fraction. You know, they're, they're constantly like nudge, nudge, wink, winking. But what are they murdering? That is the question. <laughs> I, that I don't know. Is it their friendship? I have no idea. I I don't I don't think so. Again, like you they end this comic and the last words of the book are Matt Fraction wrote sex criminals, Chip Zdarsky drew sex criminals. They're defining themselves by this book. So like whatever is being murdered or whatever's being discussed or thrown on this page, it's clear to me that sex criminals is a personal work mm. in ways that other stories that they work on might not be. It does feel like a kinky window. And the person I really want to talk to after reading Sex Criminals is Kelly Sue DeConnick. Oh, yeah. What does she have to say about the relationship of Suze and John? Where we left off in the last issue, Suze is at Kubra Badal's house. And so he tells her to get in the car. And she's like, where are we going? And he's like, seriously? You don't know where we're going? Okay, I'll play along and tell you where we're going because you already know that I'm taking you back to where everything started, which is 
the building of Bank Corp that her father had jumped out of at the beginning of her sexual awakening. Susie, of course, then thinks that this is all about her dad. And she's like, ah, my dad was onto you. And Cooper is like, really? I didn't really even know him. But the money from the crash that he was onto has paid for this monstrous machine that I call Antonio, which is the machine that we've seen, the big suck machine. And we find out that it is, in fact, a large battery. And so she's like, what is this all about? And he's like, you don't know. You have to know because you are God. And she's like, no, I'm not. Badal then walks us through his origin story of him discovering his version of the quiet. But he couldn't get there until he discovered that he liked his sex with a side of being a real bastard of some <laughs> cruelty. So there was this uh, guy at his college uh, in his freshman year named Antonio, and he tricked Antonio into giving him a blowjob in order to get into a secret club of which Cooper Badal was not even a member. And so like getting the sexual act isn't what sent him into the quiet. It was revealing to the guy that actually I can't help you in any way. So adding that cruelty is what sent him to the quiet. And in terms of heroes and villains within the context of sex criminals, this is the greatest villainous superpower. When I realized this, I was like, high five fraction in Zadarsky. I love that. Because then the next several pages of his origin are just littered with the most atrocious acts. Like by the time you get back to the present, like... You really hate this dude. He is a bad dude. But you start to wonder, like, is he just a product of that gift? Like, you know, in discovering that that's his superpower, like to get to the quiet, he has to do those things. Then that means he has to foster his villainy. But or is the cruelty angle just an extension of his dark soul already? Like if he was a good guy, would the cruelty aspect be part of him getting into the quiet? Like what, what came first there? I think that it all comes down to the idea of you don't get to choose your kink, whether sure. it's spanking or being a adult baby or pissing on somebody. Like whatever your thing is, it's weird and it's mysterious and it's all wrapped up in somewhere that you can't touch. What's different about his kink versus all the other characters though, is that his kink requires villainy. Like mm. his kink requires to, to, to create acts of cruelty upon other people. And so what he could have done is abstained if he was like, you know, uh, quote unquote, a good guy, he could abstain from that kink, but Asking somebody to abstain from their kink, that's that's impossible. Yeah. So there's like a tragic element to Kuber Badal when I drill down a little bit. I think it's all compounded by the fact that he is not at all ashamed yeah. at what he's done. <laughs> yeah. And he has used it for just um, wealth. And that's beyond kink. I mean, that's also another aspect to his villainy. But he does think that he's in service to something. Because mm. with that first orgasm, he has this vision right. of this woman of the future who is Susie, who is wearing this T-shirt 
that that is we see it it's just a silly like sex shirt with a big circle on it like like something about a hole i can't remember but when she's like all blurred out because she's a vision it may actually makes the bank corp logo that we see all over the place but every cruel orgasm he has is an attempt to get back to that vision of Susie. So he keeps upping his cruelty game. He tries like modulating like abstention, emotional intimacy, all of, he's trying to modulate all of these levels to create what helps him see the future until he um, comes so hard when he tells, so he marries Antonio. Poor Antonio. Just so while they're having sex later, he can tell Antonio that it was all a mistake and he wants his grandmother's ring back. That poor dude. (laughs) Um, But because of that cruelty, he has such a powerful orgasm that it shoots him into the future. And in the future, there are two strangers who happen to be watching the news where he picks up like stock things. So that's how he builds his wealth. He can shoot his load literally into the future, gather information and bring it back to into the present, which is also how he caught wind of that battery company that has made allowed him to implant these little power, sex power gathering machines and build Antonio the machine. And so going again, back to the motivations of Kubra Badal, because he thinks he is seeking a deity, you know, like every act he does is to return him to Suze, his God. That makes things very, very complicated for him. Or what I mean is like how we perceive him as a good guy or a bad guy. Product of his kink or not, or whether he thinks that he's serving this deity, when the deity tells him, like, I'm I'm not who you think I am, and you should probably stop what you're doing, because all, all I see you as is the guy who has ruined my life. He doesn't seem particularly phased by that. Yeah. He goes like, ah. You're, you're not God? Like, oh, I guess this is one of those weird chicken and the eggs things. Yeah, there is a sociopathic quality to that response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and I, I think for him, what his God wants or not ultimately doesn't matter because it happened. And so he knows it's going to happen. And so when he attaches himself back up to the suck machine for the ultimate orgasm, which ultimately explodes the building, that's his end game. He's done. Yeah, I don't think that he knows what's on the other side of Susie's vision. So um, she does. So the ink on her hands, what she has on her hands is hair dye from he he. He says that all of his travel into the future has caused right. this premature aging that dyes his that his hair has gone gray. So he hands her a bottle of hair dye. She has hair dye on her hands. And we begin to see the pieces of the pink flash come together. And Cooper Badal says, like, we are approaching our apotheosis. And an apotheosis can be um, the climax of something, but it is also like this elevation to a divine status. I looked, I Googled it. Oh, good. I Googled Thank that you. word and I learned something. I appreciate that. But he has no idea what's on the other side is the point. And so we as readers have been expecting this huge showdown between 
the sex police with John and Kegelface and Dave and Anna and Alex and, and of course, Susie. But what ends up happening is this big explosion that was out of everybody's control except for Cooper Bedalls, and we never see him again. For all we know, what he was going for happens because he's just gone. It's because ultimately the biggest kink of this comic is the kink of subversion held by Zadarsky and Fraction. That is 100% the case. They get off on um, subverting our expectations. But we forgot to talk about like his whole aim by having all of this sex power up uh, all gathered into Antonio. So his sex powers when he comes he goes into the future he believes that when Susie comes she blasts herself into the past which we haven't seen as the case because we just see her stop time yeah he says that she steps out of time but then they have abilities to go different directions he goes into the future she goes into the past his aim is is to, here's a quote, F time as much as time effed up. All so we could stop life and rewrite it however we see fit. So he's like, you miss your dad? Let's go back. Let's rewrite time and save your dad. And she starts to cry and she goes like, no, time only goes forward. That's how it should be. And then like he sees her crying it's kind of hot. He puts the suck suck machine on his um, uh, delicate parts and then he comes and then the building explodes. And so the only reason we know that he does not succeed in his aim is because history is not rewritten, but we do not know what actually happens to him. Does he deteriorate? Does he fly so far in the future that we have no idea where he's gone to? Uh, is he now living in some energy existence? Fraction and Zadarsky are not interested in really answering that in any way. Effectively, Badal has just exploded. To me, this is just like massively anticlimactic. I'm not sure what I necessarily wanted to see as like, like I am intrigued by the conversation that Alex started way back in issue 26. Like, can we be the type of people to F someone? And now we never really get to see that because Susie decides to take the bull by the horns on her own, and she is completely out of control of the whole situation. Cooper Badal, I guess, if this really was the the end of his means, he just got his way right up until he exploded himself. For me, I don't mind that so much. You know, the, the, the bad guy disappears. The story is not about the bad guy. And I kind of like that that question of, are we the type of people to F somebody? Is it answered for all of the characters so that they can live on with that question in their lives? We can live on with that question in our lives. Like, I think that is interesting. Um, and ultimately, the comic book is not about, are we going to take down Cooper Badal? The comic is about... Susie and John and coming to terms with their trauma, coming to terms with the grief in their lives, coming to terms with what kind of relationship do they want to have. But we're analyzing this comic issue by issue, and there really is nothing about what we care about in this issue at all. Sure. And I mean, again, 
I think where my my interest starts to slip away is in the whole Cooper Badal plot. Yeah. I don't think I ever invested in that. And I think that's why I want to go back to that first trade paperback with the promise of sexy crime stopping, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Uh, because what I really respond to in this comic is the relationship of John and Susie. And when we're not dealing with that, however the chips fall out, whether they're anticlimactic or not, doesn't really bother me. So this is the end of Cooper Badal. Okay. What's not cool is thinking that Susie's dead. And when we turn the page on issue 29 and we are at her wake, suddenly I'm like, oh no, is she actually dead? Because when the last issue ends with an explosion, you're like, oh, well, the next issue could open in the future. It could open in the past. It could open in another dimension, whatever. But when you open on a wake, I'm like, oh, is this the type of comic that's going to get this sad? But instead of starting in the past or the future or whatever, it starts on a lie. Like the narrator, Susie, goes like, that's not how it happened at all. So this is so we get a panel of a timeline that is within the context of this world fiction. It's just another subversion of expectations, yeah. I guess. But then we get to the real timeline the day after the building has exploded, all of our favorite sexual deviants are standing at the base of the building. And then John goes off to God knows where. We discover that everybody else has lost their connection to the quiet. Masturbating is just masturbating now. Um, but John doesn't discover that until after he has systematically destroyed Everything in Cooper Badal's mansion. And that's what the majority of this comic is, is we're watching John obliterate Badal. Finally, everything that he owned, he is dismantling. And as he's doing that, we're listening to Susie's thoughts. Where they're coming from, we're not exactly sure until we are. John, of course, is arrested and he goes to jail and we learn that when he finally um, pleasures himself, he can see Suze, who's been hanging out like a ghost. And she tells him, John, don't worry, I'm coming. And I do have like a little bit of a question. Um, could anybody else of this group see Sue's in this state. You know, when John pleasures himself, she happens to be hanging out with him because she's obsessed with him. But if she was like hanging out with Myrtle Spurge or hanging out with Dewey and Bud and they were pleasuring themselves, would they then see her? Well, we know that while she's in, while she's outside of time, uh, she's looking at the different timelines intertwined of the people that she loves. And when he is masturbating, she sees him as a point of light in the timeline and she goes towards it. Right. So she never would go to any of the others. Uh, I don't know if they would appear as a point of light. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. In the next issue, we actually get to see where Suze has been and what she's been doing. So apparently the power that had built up in Antonio, when Antonio exploded, was strong enough to really push her so far outside of her timeline that she could look down at the timeline of her life. And it looks almost like when you watch the garage band <laughs> and you yeah. see our audio recording, 
that's what it looks like from the outside. And she also sees that everybody else's timeline, like John's, like Anna's, like Alex's, are just like hers. Just these kinds of record scratches that are all interlinked and tangled together in this way that everybody and everybody else is tangled together forever within time. And so while she's outside of time, she takes, um, she revisits the worst moments of her past. And what Cooper Badal had said she could do, she couldn't do. So she could go back to the past and look at it, but she couldn't change it. But she discovered she could do the same thing going forward. She could look into the future and see her with her mom when her mom is so old and gray. She could go and look at herself as she was old and gray. And she comes to this realization is that like the difference between the good times and the memories of good times is that when you're having the memory, you get to have the memory for as long as you want. So um, the quiet for her was taking the elation of an orgasm and suspending it. Right. So like she was like the reason that time was stopping was because she wanted to enjoy that moment longer. So she has this realization of if I'm constantly trying to elongate the best moments of my life, I'm not actually living my life. I'm actually outside of my life and looking at it. So really what the message of this book is, is try to be in the present to to focus on the past or the future is to be like Susie floating outside of the timeline, looking at the record scratch of her life and discovering that it doesn't change her emotion at all or her experience at all, I guess. Though I think it would give you some perspective. Well, certainly. I mean, that is the comic. When she finally sees John at the br- at as a bright light of the present, she goes towards it and that's how we get the the don't freak out, I'm coming moment. But Cooper Badal, like we said, never re- rematerializes. And she wonders if it's because nobody missed him. So mm. the present meant nothing because nobody was loving him. Yeah, in definitely that not Antonio. Oh, Antonio. I hope that kid's okay. Probably not. After that, life goes back to normal. Uh, she returns to her friends and her mom. And we see why she had the wigs and the gasoline. She burned all of the files and she burned all of the bank court buildings. Oh, because she can still go to the quiet, unlike everybody else. Lucky her, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think narratively that is a little weird uh, because of all the things that she learned and all the perspective she got from going into this great adventure. And then to still have it, like, you know, isn't, isn't she stretching out the things she shouldn't be stretching out, like you were saying? To me, I think it's literally just to narratively reset the world so that we can believe that this could have happened in our timeline without us noticing. Right, so all the files, all the property are burned. We don't have to worry about those guys anymore. That's right. The last two pages is John returning from prison and being on house arrest and them just spending that those moments on house arrest together, making sweet, sweet love and spooning. And we see a panel where John is asleep and Susie is just thinking. And she says, like, we're going to end like we started. 
alone. But I know I have myself, I know I have this moment, and I know that this moment is really all I'll ever have. I know that in this moment, you are here with me, and in this moment, we are alone, together. And for that, I am grateful. Thank you. And hold on. And then that's the last panel. Final issue, Sex Criminals, that's great. Um, Really good wrap up. Uh, (laughs) All right. Uh, Thoughts? What are thoughts and uh, feelings about Sex Criminals? Wait, Brad. We still have episode 69, dudes. Oh, yeah. But this is what I'm saying. Susie's perspective is that if it's over and it's not okay, it can still be the end. So if you're feeling okay in the moment, relish it because the moment is all you have. Well, I will relish that final issue. I think that final issue is a good finale for me. That's kind of how I thought the book would end. That's kind of how I wanted the book to end. And then we get the time jump of 69. And honestly, I'm not satisfied by anything that happens in this issue. I like that uh, Anna and Alex are together. I like that Bud and Dewey are together. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. And I think, you know, finishing up the series on a wedding issue feels like something that would happen in the big season or series finale of Boston Legal or Friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the moment we see that John and Susie are not only not together anymore, but are cohabitating with others, I, I I, I was and I am disappointed having gone on this journey. Same. And this is one of those narrative pet peeves of mine where if I'm engaged in a series where all we've been doing in the series is getting them together, for there to be a time jump or perhaps a sequel or or maybe just a random, just at the end, they decide not to be together, I tend to throw up my hands and go like, well, what was the point then? <laughs> I always think about the movie Speed mm-hmm. and the relationship between Keanu Reeves and uh, Sandra Bullock and that and how they comment, you know, relationships never last if they have begun in such a heated and um, emotionally tumultuous scenario, like in an action movie, like being trapped on a bus with a bomb on it. And of course, that proves out to be true in Speed 2 because Jason Patrick comes over and replaces Keanu Reeves. And like, you know, you get to the end of Speed and they say, no, no, that's silly. We can make it work. We will make it work together. And then Speed 2 ruins it all. Scientifically, it is actually more likely that if you go through an exciting thing together, all of those hormones of the excitement will get mixed up with the oxytocin hormones of the person that you're with, and you're more likely to stay together. To bond together, together, yeah. Yeah. So that's not necessarily true. Though, you know, if you have some kind of tragedy, like you have a child together and you lose the child, sometimes that can end up in disaster. I always think of Die Hard, where um, their marriage is on the rocks. In Die Hard 1, yeah. In Die Hard 1. He saves her entire building yeah. of co-workers and his wife she sees that all of the effort he has put into being a good cop is worthwhile because he's a hero they're still together in the second movie it takes place at the Dulles airport 
super near where we live. And uh, <laughs> she is totally turned on by the idea that he gets to play uh, hero, hero yeah. once again. And then the third movie, they're, they're divorced. divorced. Yeah, like, yeah. What is the, like, what happened? Yeah, we fell in love with these characters. We fell in love with the McLeans. We fell in love with John and Susie. And, you know, we want to see them happy together. Um, and Chip and Matt have Die Hard with a Vengeance Dust uh, with the final issue of 69. And while it does feel logical or possible for these two to drift apart, um, it's, it's not satisfying for me for all the reasons we just said. At the same time, when I get to the last page of this issue, the implication to me is that they are in a circular relationship. And while they are not together at the beginning of issue 69, they could be together at the end of issue 69. And if we go back to the previous issue, when Suze is hopping around her timeline, we do see an image of her with very gray hair, lying in bed with a man. His back is to her, and she is reaching out in an, uh, um, a gesture of connection. And, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at the back of that man. I'm like, is that John? And the reality is that could still be John. And, you know, this is, this is, what, this is how they are. This is kind of how they met. And this is how they always will be. And is that, is that annoying? Is that satisfying? Is that subverting? Uh, to me, what hurts my feelings the most is if you look at Susie's character and everything she's been through, when we met her way back in issue one, she was in a relationship that was not satisfying yes, right, and she right. felt like she could have more. Right. Now, I don't think that her relationship with Guy is as her terrible. Yeah. Is as terrible as that first relationship we met her in. She is kind of being less forthcoming than yeah. she's been in previous. She's like, Hey, I'm going to keep my sex life with Guy or, and my sex life with myself in the quiet, a little bit more private from now on. But, like, to me, seeing Susie end up only slightly better than where she was in the first issue is so frustrating well, to me. Well, not only, like, to me, the real dagger of this issue is the conversation that Suze and John have when they finally do come together and have their awkward exchange, and then they go off and they chat. And she talks about how Guy does not provide the lightning. There's yeah. like a little thunder, but no lightning. I feel and so sorry And John gets some guy. sort of like satisfaction in that. Yeah. And I find that to be really ugly and, and depressing. Mm -hmm. And so when I get done with 69, I, I was crestfallen. There are elements of this 69 issue that I did like. I, I'm not excited about the Dewey and Bud glow up that they're these like, um, big time celebrities now. It's a little goofy. But I did like Myrtle Spurge as their security. I really liked that Susie's mom has really been following her bliss to the point where she seems to be some kind of cult leader. Yeah, I mean, all the other characters seem pretty darn happy Rochelle or in better places. and Richard Rainbow. Yeah, Alex Rainbow. and Anna yeah. are together. Like, I, I like all that stuff. And, you know, it, it feels warm. The comic does feel warm. But where it doesn't feel warm is in 
the relationship of John and Susie. Which is what we showed up for. Correct. I do think the way we respond to this comic is a lot to do with our own personalities. And it's kind of like the before trilogy test, right? Like depending on which Richard Linklater movie you enjoy before midnight, before sunrise, before sunset, uh, it, it, it speaks to what type of romantic you are. If you're a before midnight person, you're into realism and the struggle of a relationship. If you're a before sunrise person, you're a naive romantic and I am a naive romantic. I don't particularly like any of those movies. How dare you? I feel like that Ethan Hawke character comes on a little strong. But I do like a fairy tale happy ending. I think because I feel like I'm in one. Yeah, same. And like we do talk about that when when folks are saying, you know, like relationships take work. And I understand the thought process behind a comment like that. But I, I don't think of our relationship as work. So when I encounter a story like this one that seems to imply that yes, there is work and sometimes it goes one way and sometimes it doesn't go one way. I buck against it. Yeah. Or the idea of if you have a romantic couple at the center of your story, they have to either be coming together or pulling apart. Right. There is um, a happy medium, a happy suspension of contentment. Well, and not everybody has a relationship like we do. And I'm sure there's folks who read this and go like, yes, this is my reality and respond extremely well to it. But if you're a relationship where you don't feel like there's lightning, like go find the lightning. You deserve lightning. Absolutely. You deserve lightning. We deserve lightning. But that's going to do it for us. We reached the end of Sex Criminals. It's over. No more. Although actually, technically, there is a sexual Gary one shot that is available that we could return to someday. But if we do, we're probably going to cover that in a Married to Singles episode on our Patreon fade. There was a, a sexual Gary Easter egg. Did you catch it? Yeah, it's the bedroom poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, on uh, Susie's wall. So as a fun. Kid. Very cool. Uh, but Lisa, we got to talk about this. Uh, what did what did we learn uh, about ourselves at the end of uh, this run, this journey? I do think that Susie is not wrong when she's saying that you have to train yourself to recognize the great moments in your life so that you can cherish them and live within them. Sure. Instead of being outside of yourself, kind of looking into your life. But I do think that people have more control over their life than Susie seems to think. Or like the story is letting... Susie and John have, where we see them in these repetitive cycles of, like Susie, for instance, being discontent, getting into a relationship uh, that is unsatisfactory, furthering either her education or career, and then ending up back with John. Like, that is her cycle. And I feel like in the time jump between the last time we saw her with John and issue 69 when she's with Guy, she has gone into graduate school. She feels like she needs to prioritize herself and her own happiness and therefore cannot be with John. Where I feel like 
after episode 30, they had plenty of opportunities to prioritize their lives so that they could include each other and whatever other dreams for Susie going to graduate school, for John, you know, having this theater program within the prison system. I think one of the frustrations of 69 is not learning what broke them up the last time, being Mm. denied that conversation. We have no idea what drifted them apart. And so we're left with this idea that they will always drift apart and they will always come back together. And I think that some people might find that idea romantic. And I personally find that idea really unsatisfactory. And that's definitely what I learned about myself in going through this journey with sex criminals is that I am the romantic. I, I do believe that you can work out your differences unless they are catastrophic. I think these two could have worked it out. I wanted these two together. I don't believe that any two people can make a happy relationship, but I do believe that these two people can make a happy relationship. That's what I'm trying to say, yes. Yeah, yeah. From Esther Perel and thinking about that episode of Where Do We Begin, I personally want to be more aware of when I am spiraling into one of those same old, same old arguments, or even when I'm just with myself into a line of destructive thought pattern that if I had seen it coming, I could have hit the eject button a little bit sooner. Just that idea of how about I exercise my freedom and see if I can get a different outcome than what I would usually mm. get if I just went with the habit. So uh, I'm going to interrupt you here because I want to. Uh, I don't want you to steal what I was going to say because I feel like you're on the same path that uh, that I'm on. And it's this idea that you can step out of time and observe yourself, right? Like we we have that imaginative ability to put ourselves in the space above our reality the way that Susie can when she steps into the quiet. When you are in your most heated uh, moment with your partner, like when you are having an argument, when you're mad at yourself or angry or whatever, the ability to step out and analyze the hot emotion. And it is something that I have been practicing more and more since we've been doing this podcast of going like, Naming the pain, right? You know, uh, as Esther Perel was saying, like, say, ouch, like, find your ouch. What's the ouch? When you hit that ouch going like, ah, that's an ouch. Why do I feel this ouch? How Mm. can I get beyond this ouch? How can I get beyond this uh, flame of anger that I'm currently feeling? And I do think that I am getting better at reducing the heat and getting to the healing place with you quicker when we do have those little spats. We do still feel the heat though, even though we, we have kind of um, truncated the time. We do feel the heat. I would love to get it in there a little bit quicker. We're getting better all the time. Get in there a little quicker before the hot flash of of rage happens. I don't think we're ever going to erase or, um, cool heat. Like, yeah. like 
you're always going to get into arguments with your partner and, you know, you're always going to hurt your partner's feelings. Uh, you know, like no one causes pain better uh, than your partner does, yeah, that's right? True. And so I'm not looking to um, cure us of spats. What I'm looking to do is cure myself of lasting in the hot emotion. Mm. Um, I, 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 you know, and, and I, yes, I think we can keep working at that. I think we can take that time and reduce it more and more so that it's only an instant or a few minutes rather than an afternoon or a day. I think off mic, you said something that was just so brilliant. Oh, you were in a situation where you were frustrated and you asked yourself, well, what would, what would be the advice I would give to myself? Yeah. And I think that that is such a great idea of like, if you're in a conflict going like, okay, if I were Ann Landers or if I were Dan Savage well, if, or whatever. Or if I was John in Sex Criminals, what would I tell John as a reader? Like, what are you doing, Brad? What are you doing? Yeah, or yeah, exactly. So that idea of, I know that Susie says that we shouldn't be stopping time. We should be living in the moment. But I think that if it's a bad moment. I think you should step outside. I think you should step outside and see what's going on. Yeah. I also think there is something to the title of Esther Perel's episode. You can be married or you can be right. And I think that when you're in an argument and you feel yourself emotionally spiraling with your partner, I think taking a moment of say asking like, what is my outcome of this argument. Yeah, what do Does, I want to win? <laughs> exactly. Does this, is the end of this argument both of us agreeing or is the end of this argument solving whatever the problem yeah, is? I think that's great advice. Yeah, yeah me too. Absolutely. Uh, there you go, gang. Happy New ha Year. Happy New Year. So much can happen in that between the uh, and the. So much. Yeah. Embrace the possibilities. Um, so we're going into 2021. We want to know what couples do you want to see us cover? We want to hear from you. Shoot your suggestions our way via Twitter at CBCC podcast or shoot us an email CBCC podcast at gmail.com. 2020 was the biggest year yet for comic book couples counseling, which is a crazy thing to consider, considering how weird and hellish a year it was outside of this podcast. A lot of podcasting happens at home. Yeah, it's a fact. Uh, but we covered some major couples. Rogan Gambit, check. Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, check. Norrin Rad and Don Greenwood, check. Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame, check. But there are still some major relationships we have not covered no Superman on this show? What the what? Will that happen in 2021? Maybe. Next year is the 60th anniversary of the Fantastic Four. That means we gotta cover Reed and Sue Richards, right? We would be crazy not to. We usually kick things off with an X-Men couple, and we're definitely going to do that, but... Oh, that's a big but. But, yes, it's a big but. First, we want to highlight an all-timer comic. One of the first comics Lisa and I fell hard for simultaneously. Usually, I'll read a comic and be like, you should read this. Or Lisa will read a comic and she'll be like, you should read this. But Lisa and I fell hard for this one at the exact same time as it was coming out in singles. Or actually, 
I think it was in trades. Probably, yeah. Um, I don't think we actually read this in singles. But we are talking about, drumroll, please, Lisa, Tom King and Gabriel Walters, The Vision. You gave me no drum roll there. Lisa. I know, you were too quick. I, like, could you add it in post? Add it in post. Tom King one? and Gabriel Walters, The Vision. So yes. good. The new Disney Plus series, WandaVision, hits next month. And we want to cover Vision and Scarlet Witch at some point one day, although we really just wanted to take a moment and celebrate this particular story, which definitely has some significant Wanda in it, but is more of a Vision tale. I love me some Vision. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of interesting since a lot of WandaVision trailer stuff seems like it's pulling heavily from this non-Wanda story, so I'm excited to see how that show goes. If you have not done so already, read all 12 issues of this series before jumping into our first episode of 2021. Help us get excited for that Disney Plus show. And then the week after that, we will start our ex-couple. Who's that going to be? Ooh, mystery. Send us some suggestions. Seriously, we need it. Okay, Brad, it's time to pull out. Whoa. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical bander art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Aw, I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Sexual Gary, coming to you in the near future. Uh, if you want to reach out to us and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes. I think it's called Apple Podcast. Maybe in the new year we can update that. Yeah, and like, if you'd like, like to do an active service, yeah. why not write a review of the show while you're there? You didn't get us anything for Christmas. Give us a review. Happy New Year. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love take full. And your psychic rapport open. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm baby New Year Lisa Gullickson. Wah, wah. <laughs> we can't both be baby New Year. Uh, that was I was making I, I was saying that I was saying you're you're the baby and then I'm the goat. Nah, <laughs> nah. I'm Brad Gullickson. That's how these intros go. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. I felt like that was too silly. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna let you make the call. Yeah, we can just save that as a stinger if you want.